Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am Katie Morton. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm so glad that you're here. If you want to support the podcast, please check out our affiliate links that we have in the description. If you shop on Amazon, Instacart, you can use my links and that really, really does help. Also, if um, you're looking for therapy and it's not available in your area or you're struggling to afford it, I have a better help link in the description. I've been working with them for years. I know it's not perfect for everybody, but it's a great resource. And with the offer in the description, you get 10% off your first month when you use my promo code Katie, just K-A-T-I. So thank you so much for supporting the podcast. It also helps to tell people about it and share it. Without further ado, let's get into today's questions. Now, question number one says, Hi, Katie, I'm looking for some additional tips to overcome self-hate. I've been in counseling for almost two months now with anxiety and depression from childhood trauma and neglect. As more and more issues from that start to surface, I get angry or get angrier and more disappointed in myself. Lots of thoughts of worthlessness, weakness, and that I'm unlovable. Overreacting. If I could keep going, but you, or I could keep going, but you get the idea. My counselor has given me some things to try, like journaling, going for a walk, meditating, positive affirmations, to name a few. And we are using EMDR and inner child healing in our sessions. But like I said, it seems to be getting worse instead of better. Thanks for all that you do. This is a great question, and it's incredibly common. And let me just kind of hopefully validate your experience. When we start processing our abuse, they're always, I don't know why, but they're, com- well, I actually do know why, and I can kind of tell you some of the reasons, but it comes along with a lot of shame, guilt, and embarrassment. And what you're experiencing here is kind of the shame portion. And the reason shame hangs out with our trauma is because when someone who's supposed to love us and care for us, like a family member, a parent, or even a spouse, whoever it is, when they're supposed to love us and care for us, and instead they harm us, we do our best to make sense of something that can't be made sense of. Does that make sense? (laughs) It's like what information that we have can't be packaged up in a way that our intellectual brain is like, totally get that. That tracks. No, our brain's like, wait, what? But they're supposed to care for us. And it's like conflicting, right? And so when we have those conflicting thoughts and feelings, we then do what we can do. And we end up blaming ourselves because that's the only thing that we know fully, right? And when other things don't make sense, it must be me. I must be the problem, right? If I've looked out in the world and I'm looking at all these people thinking like, what, what's going on? It must be me. Or if I was repeated abuse, like, or if I was abused repeatedly, then I look out and think, well, if all those different people did those things to me, then something must be wrong with me. 
right? So we turn it in on ourselves and those are shame thoughts. And why our brain does that is just to try to make sense of the senseless. It does our best to kind of like understand the threat as much as possible. But when there's no understanding to be had because what happened is nonsensical, right? We end up with a just compounding shame. And so that's really what you're experiencing. And the reason it's getting worse when you're starting to work on this rather than better is because we're finally digging into it and we're actually processing it. And as shitty as it is to say that's a normal part of the process, does it make it comfortable or okay? No. Does it mean you have to just deal with it? No. There are some tools and things that we can do. Now, a couple of things to kind of combat this self-hatred, the self-shame, the just shit talking, feeling worthless, weak, all those things, is to acknowledge that those thoughts are coming up and to bridge statement your way out of them. Meaning, if you haven't heard me talk about this before, a bridge statement is something that we do when we want to get from dumpster fire island of I'm so unlovable, I'm worthless, uh, I'm no good, I'm, I'm broken, something's wrong with me. We want to get all the way over to, I feel pretty good about who I am. Things are okay. I know shitty things happen, but I will rise above. It'll be okay. In order to get there, we can't just jump because we'll get here and immediately not believe it and find our way back into Dumpster Fire Island. The only way to get over here in a healthy way is to build a bridge. And that bridge is filled with what I would call, I mean, I call them bridge statements, but a better definition or a better descriptor might be to say they're not as shitty of thoughts. <laughs> and so instead of thinking I'm unlovable, for example, the bridge statement would be I'm open open to questioning the possibility that maybe I'm not as unlovable as I thought or as I think. Now, I know you're like, that's not really that different, but it is. It's huge. Instead of confirming and affirming the belief or thought, we are at least open to the fact that we might not be right or that it could be different or that it could change or any of those things, right? That's huge. And so I encourage you to start doing that, to start challenging those thoughts instead of entertaining them, making friends with them, uh, affirming them through other thoughts. Because having a thought twice or having a thought that supports another thought doesn't make those thoughts facts. Thoughts are not facts. I know we have them repeatedly. That doesn't make a difference. We have to challenge them, which moves into my second tip, which is checking the facts. So when you have this thought or this belief that like, I'm worthless, is there one thing that you can do well? Be honest. Are you really fast at typing? <laughs> Maybe you are, right? I know I giggle, but that that's something you're good at. It's just because back in the day when I was in school, we had to learn how to type because computers were new. That's how old I am. Um, is there a meal that you can make for yourself? Are you able to hold a job or go to school? Do you have any relationships? Maybe we're not as worth. It's possible that you're not as worth, right? Check those facts versus taking these thoughts as facts. So that's the second tip. And then my third tip is really that we need to talk about this in therapy. We need to be honest about what's coming up for us and potentially find other things. Because it says you're like, you know, positive affirmations, you're journaling, going for a walk. Those things can benefit a little bit, but I feel like we need to we need to do something different because positive affirmations, no offense to positive, I don't think they work very well. As that's kind of like akin to jumping to the other, right? We can't do that. And so we might need some other, meaning my third tip is 
other ways to physically get rid of this extra negative energy. That could be through a body shake. That means we take a cold shower, we dunk our face in cold water. I know people are talking all about cold plunges these days and there are tons of benefits to them. So even if you don't have a, a huge tank in your backyard that you can get into, you can stick your head in a, a sink filled with cold water or take a cold shower. Yes, they're uncomfortable, but it is really good for your system and it helps boost serotonin and not to mention a lot of other things where inflammation and all sorts of things. But doing some kind of physical thing, I think will be the third portion of this. So just for recap, my three tips are, number one, we need to um, we need to do those bridge statements. We need to challenge those thoughts. We need to slowly move our way from dumpster island over into a more healthy, positive outlook. Number two, we need to check our facts. These thoughts aren't facts, so we need to check those. And third, we need to do some physical something to kind of get us out of that way of thinking. If we find ourselves spiraling, we can do a body shake, we can take a cold shower, dunk our head in cold water. We can do all of those things to kind of get it out of our nervous system as well. And hopefully kind of by that three-tiered approach, we'll find at least one that's really beneficial. But again, those I don't know. I'm just not a huge fan of positive affirmations, which I know sounds weird, but I just don't find them to be that helpful because our brain immediately, because it's been filled with garbage about how terrible we are all day, every day, when we try to give it something positive, it's like, "Mm, I don't think so, right? It's immediately like, nope. So it's not really resonating. They're not landing. It's, It's just like almost extra garbage in your head. And so let's give those things a try and hopefully that will help move you in a healthier direction. But I also do want you to know that as you process through your trauma, I know it's worse now, but it will get better. It's just worse because we're actually tapping in and all those shame thoughts and beliefs are kind of like floating out of it. But as we move through it, it'll subside, okay? Now there were comments on this as as an add-on, my therapist said that some part of my self-hatred comes from not being able to feel anger which is why I direct it towards myself because I don't have a barrier against mean comments as I tend to emphasize with the mean person or maybe empathize is what they meant with the mean person or agree with them. How can I feel anger because I cannot express it healthily if I don't even know how to feel it? Anger in, it's interesting. It could be, I could agree with your therapist that it's because you can't express it, that it's going in. But I also think that anger out tends to look and feel a certain kind of way and when we don't feel able to express it meaning it wasn't safe which could be an abuse situation it could be um our our family didn't do that and we were almost shamed about it which also is abuse but just hear me out some people need to hear it in different forms um it could mean that you know we were kind of told or shown that anger wasn't appropriate and so either way we don't feel safe to express anger therefore we turn it in because that's the way that it does feel safe. Now to say that you don't know how to feel anger is is not true. I have to push back on that because you do experience it. You just only know how to give it to yourself. So I'd encourage you to do some research, to be curious, not judgmental about the conversation you have with yourself, right? What, What are the angry things I tell myself? What's the anger that I experience when I'm at my house by myself? What's the conversation like? Be curious. We have to learn about it because you do experience anger and you do know how to feel it. You just don't know how to express it outwardly, which is different, but it's still anger nonetheless. And I want you to try your best to reframe your anger. So when you have an angry thought or feeling, even if it's about yourself, 
instead of thinking, oh, it's anger or, oh, this is so uncomfortable. I just need to like get out of this. I need to express it or I need to like stuff it deep or I need to beat myself up about it. Instead of doing that automatic response, I want you instead to, to consider your anger and think to yourself, hmm, anger, Katie said, is a helpful emotion. It's an indicator of something else going on. What's going on? Because anger is primarily a cover-up. It's not the only thing we're experiencing. We often experience anger as a result of another emotion. That's why we call it like a secondary emotion. And the reason is, is because those other emotions can make us feel vulnerable, right? If I feel hurt, anger might come to my aid because it makes me feel more powerful or more safe. Or if I feel a little bit uh, worthless, anger can jump out and lash out so that I don't have to fully experience that worthlessness or allow anybody else to know that I feel that way. Does that make sense what I'm saying here? And so you do know anger. You just don't want to acknowledge it or pay attention to it. You want to stuff it down and turn it in on yourself. So journal a little bit about how you express your anger inward. What are the angry thoughts you have? Let's start paying attention to those versus pretending they don't exist. And if you struggle with that, if you're like, well, I still, anger makes me anxious to be around it because of abuse in my past. Okay. You can watch TV shows or films that have angry people in it. You know, it's a great, uh, unfortunately, a great resource for this is any kind of Real Housewives, reality TV show type of stuff. They're always fighting. They create fake drama to keep us watching. So that's a great opportunity for you to be able to watch what anger looks like, see how it plays out, and then just, you know, pay attention to how you feel about it, what you think about it. Is that how it was expressed in your home? Like, ask yourself some questions, journal about. It's like we're doing research about anger. See what you can learn, okay? Okay, another comment says, how does this relate to shame? I feel like I kind of answered this. I experienced medical issues, or I experienced medical issues that led to mental health struggles. I live with my parents and they did not handle my panic attacks and trauma episodes well, restraining, physically fighting me, etc. Collectively, these events have led to PTSD and ruined my relationship with my parents. I can't help but blame myself for it, though. If I hadn't had medical issues and mental health struggles, they wouldn't have acted in harmful ways and they wouldn't have had to deal with all the distress that I caused them. If I never existed, they could have been happier and wouldn't have had to suffer. How do I overcome these beliefs? Is self-hate different from self-blame and shame? It's no different. Um, All of these ifs, if I hadn't had medical issues, it's interesting to live in the shoulda, coulda, woulda, in the, the things we can't change and things we can't even fix. Unfortunately, your depressive thoughts are forcing you into a space of helplessness and hopelessness because we can't go back in the past and change what's what's already happened, right? And that's what you're living in with these. If I hadn't had, if they hadn't done this, if that hadn't happened, I encourage you to notice when you're doing this, what I call like, you know, the favorite old record. We can put those on and play those all day long. We've said it to ourselves probably hundreds of thousands of times. It's not helpful and it's in the past. And so there's nothing we can do today to change what has already happened. But you know what we can do and what is empowering and what is hope filled is to consider what we want to do moving forward to repair relationships, to repair our own self and our PTSD response, to change the way we talk to ourselves and those that we love. Okay, so those are things we want to change. What does that look like then? 
Maybe that means that we have a conversation with our parents or we apologize for our role in it. And also simultaneously remind them or let them know, maybe we haven't let them know, that the way that they interacted with us was really harmful and hurtful. Maybe that's the first step forward. I don't know. Maybe the first step is actually just thinking about what we would even say or who we would want to talk to or how that would go down. But either way, playing that old record from the past isn't going to help you change the present or the future. It's going to keep you held there in a very helpless, hopeless place, which is probably why you're having all this self-hatred and shame and blame thoughts is because you're living in that space all the time. And that's not a healthy place to be because again, we cannot change what has already happened but we can decide that we want to change for a better future, that we want to move forward with things and choose to act differently, choose to be more honest, speak up for ourselves, assert our needs, um, process through our trauma and feel better. All of that will help pull you out of that. But yes, also, I believe the first component when I answered that question talks about that shame piece too. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hey, Katie, is it possible to have full-on discussions while dissociating? Sometimes during therapy or other overwhelming situations, I can't remember what was said. Is that dissociating or something else? Thank, um, Thanks, and you have no idea just how much I appreciate all that you do. Oh, of course, of course. Now, yes, you can have full-on discussions while dissociating. It, my friend Dodie, who struggles with DPDR, stands for Depersonalization Derealization Disorder, otherwise known as Dissociation this is her biggest frustration is well that along with like the memory loss but the fact that she will be engaging with someone and she doesn't have any memory and she doesn't even know what she's saying and it feels like she's kind of like i don't know not at the wheel you know not in control like we're just kind of watching something unfold and so yes that's really common because think of dissociation i know in a lot of ways, I've explained like, you know, you can space out, you can have dissociative fugues where you don't really remember what's happening. That's a part of dissociation, unfortunately, for a lot of us. But I think a big component of it is the fact that we're just slightly removed from self, but still able to do all the things we do, which is why it's incredibly dangerous. Please don't drive a car, operate any, you know, I always hate to say operate heavy machinery because I don't know about you, but I always picture someone like at a forklift. But we shouldn't be doing anything where we could really hurt ourselves. But often we don't even know that that's happening and it just happens and we're already driving or we're already doing something that where we could hurt ourselves. But dissociation is that overwhelm to our nervous system and it pulls the ripcord on reality, pulls us out of ourself or our environment. But yes, we're still able to have like conversations with people. We're able to do what we need to do at work sometimes. I have people who are you know, pretty much able to like, quote unquote, function, they're just not present. And they probably won't have a full memory of that day or event. And that's what kind of sucks too. Now, there's another comment on this that said, yes, can you experience dissociation differently depending on the situation? When I smell a specific smell, I am gone like the snap at the snap of fingers. I'm back a few hours later. Other times in other situations, I feel myself slip away. And sometimes I can't stop. Oh, I can stop myself and bring myself back. Yes, it depends on the intensity of the trigger. Remember, dissociation is, is, it happens or it's caused by an overwhelm to our system. Now, this overwhelm could be, like you said, a specific smell that reminds us of an abuser or a really horrific, terrifying time in our life. Um, It could be a sound. It could be a person. It could be a place. It could be any number of triggers, depending on what causes our dissociation, what situation leads to it or what has happened that has been traumatizing okay so there's that piece 
But then there's others that aren't in, as triggering, which is why you like feel yourself slip away. And that's because in that moment, you're slightly triggered, but not so intensely that it's like a reaction. So we slowly slip. And in those cases, because the trigger is not so intense, we can often use our coping skills, ground ourselves and pull ourselves back. That's when, that's when we have the space to do it. It's those quick ones that really need some work ahead of time, meaning that we have to build up our resilience. We have to identify what those intensive triggers are so that we can better prepare for them in the future. Meaning that if we know, I don't know, uh, a certain type of food is triggering to us, I'm just making something up, then we can avoid it or we can slowly start exposing ourselves to the triggering thing and try to use our skills to see if we're able to pull ourselves back or to prevent it from happening so fast or any number of things. We can kind of like try to build up that muscle to hold us there. But that's essentially what you're experiencing is incredibly normal. And it just, it's because of the, the differences of triggers and the intensity of them on our nervous system. Okay. Now there's another add on that says this happens in session to me too. When I'm actually in session, although I am mostly numb, I feel present enough and can follow my therapist. But afterwards, I often find it near impossible to remember a lot of what transpired. I have no trouble remembering homework, though. So I'm not sure if maybe the dissociating, if that even is what it is, is topic sensitive. It's the intensity within your system. So therapy probably builds an intensity. So you might remember the beginning and then the end because we kind of come down before we end session, right? So I'd assume you have memory at the beginning and end. But as we build up an intensity about what we're talking about, we can pull out. Now, Obviously, you can follow your therapist. Like I said, most people can hold conversations and do what they need to do, and no one would be the wiser, but we might not have full memory. So I'm glad you remember the homework. Please, please, please let your therapist know this is happening, and you're going to have to work together to try to figure out some of those earlier signs. Like one of the biggest ones I see with my patients is they stop moving, so they start to freeze, and they start to avoid eye contact. And they might like just space out just like off from my eyes, just a little bit. And it looks like freeze like that for, I don't know, it could be the whole session, could be a couple of minutes, it just depends. And so that kind of freezing and that like difficulty with eye contact is usually part of the telltale signs, but everybody's different. So let your therapist know that you feel like, you know, this might be happening. I don't really remember a lot of the session. I do remember the homework. I just feel like dissociated, like overwhelmed because what I assume is going on is that therapy is a little bit too intense without enough coping skills. And so we either need to lessen the intensity or increase the coping skills or maybe a little bit of both until we feel we're at a place where we can talk about what we need to talk about while also, you know, um, staying present. Okay. Now there's a final add-on to this says, I have a question about dissociating too. Yesterday I was quote unquote holding my leg in place when I was sitting down and suddenly I was startled because I thought someone had touched me on my leg when it was actually me still. Is that normal? I've had two visual psycho uh, I've had visual psychosis once, but my therapist said it's from stress and it hasn't occurred in 3 years. Okay, yeah, I don't think it's a psychosis, but it could be I mean it could be part of dissociation. I guess the it depends on what was happening. Because the only way to really know about dissociation is do we feel kind of like spaced out? out of body, out of environment? Did we struggle to like, ugh, like know what was going on or feel like we were in complete control? Um, did we struggle with memory afterward? Like those are just some of the, the signs and symptoms. Do we feel overwhelmed? Because 
that at least sounds a little dissociative, the fact that you like forgot you'd grabbed your leg. It's definitely, I don't think it's psychosis at all. Um, although people can have, but you were actually holding your leg. I feel like psychosis is when something's not there and you experience a sensation on your skin. You can see things, hear things, feel things that aren't really there, right? And But something was actually there. So that's why I don't really think it's psychosis at all. Um, is that normal? It could be normal for someone with trauma in their past who struggles to stay, stay present and has dissociative episodes. Um, yeah, that could definitely be dissociation. But I would let your therapist know and see if you could you know, track back a trigger or how long that happened to you or if it's happened before or in a different way, you know, all those things. Do some of your research, but it sounds like it could be from my perspective. Let's move on to question number three. It's because this asks, could you possibly talk a little bit about age regression? Why we may want to, and if it can be a healthy coping mechanism. I feel for much of my life, I've felt this urge, mostly used to self-soothe, but understand that it would be socially unacceptable to take this outside of myself and my home. Does that make it okay? Would being able to control it be the real issue? Related, I've been feeling this urge to ramp up lately as I've been going through some emotional and relational challenges. There's the kicker here. All while being extremely burnt out at work. I feel like I just want to put on my PJs, watch a toddler cartoon, and snuggle my stuffed animal, suck my thumb, and cry. Is it generally okay and normal, or is it a sign of something deeper going on? I wonder if it has anything to do with my intense conflict avoidance somehow. I also feel uncomfortable asking this, as I usually keep this completely to myself, and it feels really raw. I'm kind of new to this community, and I'm, telling, I'm trying to tell myself that this is a safe space. It totally is a safe space. I know it is, but yikes, I'm really puffer fishering in my heart right now. Anyway, thanks for listening and considering and for all of your work and thought. Of course, okay. A lot to unpack here. Now, age regression happens usually as a result of trauma. Um, and then when we continue to do it as adults, it's usually because it's a coping skill, it's soothing, and it's our only way to deal with what we're experiencing that is overwhelming. In your case, it sounds like you're burnt out at work, you're having emotional and relational challenges, you're just overwhelmed. So of course, you're maxed out and you're leaning on your one coping skill that has helped, which is age regression. If anybody doesn't know what age regression means, it essentially is us going back to a younger age. We're regressing to a childlike state. I've had patients want to wear diapers and wet themselves. I've had patients who want to drink out of bottles, um, eat baby food. Like this person said, watch a toddler cartoon, put on their PJ, snuggle a stuffed animal, suck their thumb. Um, there's all sorts of things that we can do to regress. And that can feel soothing because for a lot of us, that might have been the only time that we were taken care of. Or in a way we feel like, oh, I don't have to be an adult. I don't have to be responsible. Someone else can take care of me, right? There's some of that and it can feel really good and it can be soothing. Now, does that make it okay? Because we had the question about like, I know it's socially unacceptable, but like I just keep it under control at home. My pushback isn't that it's not okay or that there's anything to be ashamed of. My thought goes more to the fact that this doesn't fix any problems. This doesn't actually make you feel any better long term. It's probably something that you periodically or continually have to do. And the fact that you're having emotional relational challenges and being burnt out at work, those are the issues that I would want to attack so that the urge to regress isn't there. And I might even encourage a little like inner child work or I'd assume there's probably some trauma in your past processing through that will lessen this urge and hopefully lessen some of the like embarrassment or shame that could come along with it too. But is there something wrong with it? Not in and of itself. There's nothing that's going to hurt you or someone else. So there, 
you know, I don't really see like a problem with it. But the problem is the fact that it sounds like you're, you know, it's like socially unacceptable. We're kind of embarrassed about it. You didn't even want to ask this question. Like therein lies the issue that I have with it is because it's discomfort. Even though it's comforting in the moment, there is a discomfort to it for you. And I want you to feel good about who you are and good about what you're doing and able to get through life without having to use a coping skill that you find embarrassing. Does that make sense? And so overall, my encouragement is to, hopefully you're in therapy, but figuring out, you know, what are the things that we, can we take some breaks from work in some kind of way? Are there other rewards we could get from work that would make our, you know, the effort we're putting in not feel so much greater than the reward? Um, Do we need to start some conversations with people in our lives because we're having these like emotional and relational challenges? Can we spend some time with people we love or, you know, um, get some more support or more progress in that realm. Those are some of the things that I would focus on. It's like working on the issues that we believe are leading to this regression. But in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's really just done as a way to self-soothe. That's the thing about coping skills. The more that I talk about these is that coping skills are really just our best ways to soothe when we don't know any other way to do it. We don't actually have real healthy psychological tools. And so we use what we can. And in your case, regressing to a younger age, acting like a toddler feels safer. It feels more soothing and it feels better for you. And it's the same way people who like drink a lot. It's like, oh, I'm too maxed out or too stressed or this really worries me. I'm just going to numb out this way. This is your way of soothing. And everybody has a different way. So there's no shame in it. But I do want you to identify the roots of it, the, the causes of this urge to use this behavior and and work there. I know that if the urge to do this more comes up, that's okay. Um, but we do need to work through the things leading to this so that the urge isn't as strong, so that we feel better. Because again, even though this is like our coping skill, I don't want you to have to use it. I want you to be feeling better most days, okay? There's a comment on this as, as an add-on, how can we stop being triggered by parents becoming angry? As an adult, oh, as an adult, I always make, it always makes me feel like a child and often it also makes me cry. The same goes for rejection. The tricky thing, whatever issue we have with our parents, there's a reason that they're so triggering. I'd encourage you to be curious about what that reason is. And a huge piece of, you know, dealing with our parents and making it feel like us feel like a child is the dynamics of that relationship. And we're going to have to kind of untangle that and decide to act differently because the onus isn't on our parents because we can't ch- we can't change other people. We can't force people to act in better ways. We can not see them as often. That's also a potential. Because if your parents are super triggering and always saying things that are upsetting, maybe we limit our contact for a while until we figure out a different way to interact. Maybe that means we have conversations with them about, hey, when you say things like that, I find it really hurtful. And then then I end up acting in this way and I don't like that. You know, could we could you please not? say that kind of thing. Remember, that's a request, not a boundary. A boundary is if you keep talking to me that way, I'm not going to be able to see you as often because it is so distressing, right? That's the boundary. Um, But also, I think in general, it's figuring out why we're so triggered. What is that? Because then we kind of prepare ahead. You know, like I've said before, if something is really upsetting, really triggering, really overwhelming, we need to understand it so that we can find coping skills to manage earlier on or identify the sensations of us like building up to being triggered or feeling overwhelmed we can identify earlier on and do some things to cope so like if our parents start kind of poking our buttons or whatever we can say oh you know what 
I forgot I have this this meeting. I'm going to have to go. I'll call you guys later. And we just remove ourselves from the situation before we get too overwhelmed. Or if we find that it's like when it's just us, then we don't spend time with our parents, just us. We do like more group activities like, oh, you know, my aunt and uncle are coming over for dinner. Oh, I'll go over and see them with you. Those could all be kind of ways to navigate. But in general, when it comes to that, we have to better understand what's going on, our response to it, what the triggers are, and find out if we can cope better in some way. Again, knowing that not seeing them as often is a potential option, as well as communicating so the relationship shifts into a healthier place. Okay? Now, question number four says, hi, Katie, I know you've talked extensively about dissociation on here, but what exactly is the difference between dissociation and freezing? Is one harder to manage? Do you intervene differently as a therapist? Also, have you ever had a client pass out during a session? This happened to me during a certain flashback, similar to how someone may faint at the sight of blood. Is this dissociation or a freeze response? I'm afraid of it happening during a session with my therapist. Okay, great question. Now, I wish I had my little whiteboard. I should bring it out here. I have like a little handheld one. But imagine I have a whiteboard here. And in the middle, this line that I would draw a straight line through the middle, and that would be called baseline. Now, baseline is, we're pretty good, decent. I'm not overly activated. I'm not under activated. Someone left a comment and I'll read it later, but they talk about like hyper arousal, or arousal so extra aroused. I know people think of aroused as sexual, but it just means our nervous system is queued up, right? We're aroused. It's stimulated. Or we're hypo aroused. We're under activated. Now, dissociation as well as freeze, they kind of come out of the same thing, okay? So dissociation and freezing fall under what I would call the hypo arousal. Because when we talk about this baseline, okay, so we have this line, in the middle, our baseline, up here is like panic attacks, uh, sweaty palms, heart racing, that hyper arousal, um, anxiety symptoms. That would be up here. And then, because if we kind of go up and down, if we go down into the freeze state, remember it's fight, flight, that's hyper arousal. Freeze is this hopeless, helpless feeling where I don't think I can fight my way out of this. I also don't think I can, I can actually escape. I'm just going to play dead. I'm just going to freeze and hope it goes by quickly. In that state, our brain pulls the ripcord to kind of protect us from being present with what's happening. This could mean if we're being abused, let's say our, we're physically abused as a kid and our parent comes in who does the abuse and they have blocked the door and they're much larger than us. We can't get out and we can't beat them up we go into freeze. So we dissociate. We just, boop. and that's our protection to pull us out from our reality. And so there's, there's no real difference. Dissociation is part of the freeze segment. Okay. So that's where it lives. Um, both could be treated very similarly because they're, they require us to get back on our bodies, lots of grounding techniques. So not one isn't really harder to manage than the other. It's very, they are part of the same thing. Freezing could mean dissociation. Does that make sense? I hope so. So I don't intervene any differently. It's usually when anybody's in the, the hyper arousal, we treat it one way. We try to get that energy out of our system. Could mean through movement. Um, it could also, you know, mean that we have to like challenge those thoughts before they spin out. We might do some deep breathing. We're trying to calm our system down, right? 
when we are in freeze, we're trying to bring our system back up. So I'm going to try to bring you into your body to help you notice how your, you know, your uh, back feels against the chair and how your arms feel on the table. What do you smell? What do you see? All that. We're going to try to bring you into your body. We're going to increase the arousal. And so the interventions are only different between like fight, flight, and freeze. And then the last question, have I ever had a client pass out? I luckily have not. Um, We can pass out as what I would call, I honestly would call it more of a hyper arousal. That's where my like gut tells me where we get too overstimulated. We just go down. Um, I've had patients who have panic attacks feel like they're going to pass out all the time. That's one of their big worries, but I've never had it actually happen. Now that's, you know, let your therapist know that you've experienced this or that you're worried about it because I think that, you know, they should at least be able to check in with you. Now, I don't know, not to say you wouldn't faint in the side of blood. You know, you said you've it's happened to you at, at home, like you've had that, that pass out. Um, but hopefully with the work, working with your therapist, you can figure out like kind of how it's starting and as it's going versus it just happening to us. That's always the goal is like tracking it back so we can treat it more quickly. Um, but that sounds more what I would assume the flashback is like you're overstimulated and boof, it pulls the, it just causes you to pass out. I wouldn't say that's a dissociation or freeze response. I've never had anybody with dissociation, not to say they couldn't. If you've experienced this, let me know in the comments down below. But in my dissociation and freeze state patients, it's more along the lines of that, like out of body, out of environment, kind of just feeling spaced out. We might feel like we'll pass out, but I've never, again, I think it comes from the hyper arousal, not the hypo. Okay. Now there was an add on. It said, how can I tell when I'm dissociating versus in freeze response? I think they're very much the same. The only difference would be you could be in a freeze response and be present. Dissociations when we pull out, when our essentially our, our brain like pulls a ripcord on reality where we're just kind of disconnected. Like things will be kind of fuzzy. Things can be slowed down. We can feel like we're watching ourselves do something. We can feel like we're kind of in a movie or something or we're, we're watching from like afar. So any of that disconnection, think of dissociation, disconnection, that would be dissociating. Freeze just means immobility, right? I've gone into like a immobile state as a means of keeping myself safe. Also in freeze is in that like a uh, hypo arousal along with freeze is fawning, which is that extreme people pleasing as a means to not get hurt. And so, yeah, just know that if we're disconnected and we're di- then we're dissociated. It says, I've thought uh, that my common freeze response is by is distracting myself, but I'm wondering if I'm actually dissociating because there are times I don't remember what happened or I have blocks of times that seem to be missing. I've also recently realized how often I'm having emotional flashbacks multiple times a day. I'm in therapy and working on internal family systems and it is helping. It's just slow. Yeah. that If you have blocks of things, time you don't remember, that would be a sign of dissociation. Those are just some like little check boxes to think of. Do I feel like spaced out, out of body, out of environment? Check. Do I not remember or have like spotty memory or difficulty with memory after the fact? Check. That's another sign of dissociation, right? Do I go into dissociation when I feel like I'm hopeless, helpless, I can't get out of the situation? Those are some things to look for. Um, And those are all indications that what you're experiencing is dissociation. Okay. Um... And I'm glad you're in internal family systems. I know it's it's just slow. Unfortunately, when we're working on something like this, it just takes time. I know that's frustrating. I know we want to like speed forward and get through it. But just trust me when I tell you that it it does get better. It, we can get better at managing it. 
our dissociation can be something that we manage and are able to track early, notice the signs, and use our grounding techniques. We can get it to, you know, to be, I don't want to say under control because I just don't like that phrasing, but it can feel less and less uncontrollable. Okay. Now there's a final add-on. It said, as far as I understand, both dissociation and freezing falls into the hypoarousal category. This is the comment I was talking about. While the fight-flight response, including panic, uncontrollable crying, aggressiveness, falls into hyperarousal category. Correct. However, in my case, in certain scenarios, I find myself very scared, sometimes tearing up uncontrollably, but I'm too scared to actually move. Would you consider this to be hyper or hypoarousal? Thank you so much, Katie. I think what you're experiencing is hyper-emotional arousal, but because it's so intense, again, we go out of like our resilient zone, which is like that baseline. There's like a little buffer, like our baseline runs and we have these buffers on either side. We go up and we get so aroused, boom, we fly into freeze. And again, it's really, the reason that this happens is because our fight, flight, freeze, fawn response, our stress response assesses our environment for threat and then chooses accordingly. So as you amp up, yes, you can feel like, oh, this is hyper arousal. Yes, we are. We're emotionally charged. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But so are the freeze people. They're emotionally charged. It's just the only way we know how to cope. So it's like your brain is getting so overwhelmed. And then we look and we're like, oh my God, I can't run away from this. I can't fight this. And we freeze. And that's why you, you know, you just kind of go into, you can't move. You legitimately freeze in your body because there's, what are you going to do with when you feel really scared and you can't, you just tear up. Like, what are you going to do with that? Right. We can't run from it. We can't fight it we freeze. And so even though it feels like, oh, that I'm hyper aroused, like that's a lot of energy. It's more about the fact that our brain is trying to choose the best way to protect us. And yours decides that in that scenario or in those types of scenarios, the best thing we can do is just freeze and wait for it to pass. Okay. So that would be the hypo arousal. Okay. Question number five says, Katie, I wonder if you could talk about how to handle negative thoughts that come up while journaling. So often, my journal entries end up being filled with anger, frustration, and despair. I hate what comes out and I feel ashamed of writing it. I never want to read it again. And I often end up so disgusted by my my journals that I end up throwing them out so I never have to see them. Is there a way that I can process these thoughts on paper without hating myself for it? Or should I focus on only positive self-talk, gratitude, etc. while journaling? Thank you so much. uh, Thank you for being such an amazing person. Oh, of course. Okay. Now, a couple of things we can do. Number one, we can take a break from journaling. Journaling isn't for everybody. It's incredibly beneficial, but sometimes we're not in a place where it can actually show us that benefit. If our depression's too intense or our anxiety's too high, if we're drowning in our mental illness and our symptoms, sometimes we can't do it. It becomes an exacerbated type of thing where our anxiety gets worse or our depressive thoughts spiral or our self-hatred sends us down this terrible path, right? So sometimes it's not the best until we get a handle on those symptoms a little bit and then we can return to it, okay? So that's just for starters. The second thing is that sometimes that's why journal prompts can help. And there are a couple books 
that, I mean, I offer journal prompts, by the way, and my YouTube membership. So if you go over to my my main channel, Katie Morton, under memberships, the first tier for five bucks a month is the Inkwell Club. And on Tuesdays and Fridays, I release journal prompts. So you can let those dictate kind of how you journal and that can help keep you out of the pit of despair and like self-hatred and stuff like that, okay? But there are also workbooks like The Artist's Way, which is a lot of work, I'm just gonna be honest, but it's an amazing workbook. And she kind of, pushes you to journal in these certain ways and write every morning for 30 minutes. And I have to be honest, after a while, you kind of move out of it when you're doing it so regularly, you kind of see yourself progress. And and it's also guided. There's a lot of prompts and a lot of like things you're supposed to do. So that can help too. And there's also another one that I'm doing right now called Live Big um, by Rochelle somebody. Anyway, it's a great workbook too. Super simple. The chapters are like two or three pages, pretty big font. You read through it like in two minutes. And then there's five little exercises. And some of them are called like the dirty dozen where you just answer, like it'll start a sentence. Like in order for me to feel free, I need to, and you're supposed to do 12 of those. Boom. And that can help too. keep us kind of journaling and processing without falling in the pit of despair. Okay. So those are a couple tips. Now my third tip, I guess, kind of third tip is Use your journals as homework to stop you from doing this. So because we're writing and writing is slow, writing by hand, I mean, we cruise, but it's not as fast as typing, even though we could also do it that way. As you're writing, you find your brain going through these like frustration, anger, despair, oh, woe is me or whatever it is. You notice that that's happening and you decide to change. I would encourage you while you're journaling to say, stop, write stop, S-T-O-P. Katie said, I don't have to write like this. Let's list five things I'm grateful for. Let's just move, just shift your brain. Or we can go into, I don't want to talk about this anymore. What else is going on? It's okay to just pose questions in your journal. Like what else is going on? What else am I feeling? You know, try to pull yourself out of it. You can use that journaling experience as a way to kind of beef up the more uh, happy, joyful, grateful, part of yourself. It doesn't mean we can't have anger, frustration, or feel despair. We can feel those things. And we we all experience those things from time to time. But I don't want you to be what I would call wallowing in it. And journaling is kind of pulling you in to do that. And so as you feel it do that, I challenge you to use some bridge statements if you want, start coming up with some things that you're grateful for. I'm grateful I have breath in my lungs. I'm grateful that I have a roof over my head and clothes on my body. I was able to shower today. Whatever it is, we can start there. Um, we can go through a happy memory. We can dream a dream. What do I hope tomorrow's like? We can journal about anything. So I just encourage you to notice when it's happening and decide to take a different path. We don't have to go down that one we know so well. I know it's comfortable. I know that it will want to, it'll be really quick, almost like second nature. We don't even think about it, but we need to pay attention because just like anything, just like driving down a road, we get to choose. Do we want to go left or right? We've always gone right. Maybe let's try left today and see where that takes you. Okay. There's a comment on this that as a follow-up, what if after journaling, we feel worse than when we started? Sometimes I feel so upset after journaling, it's hard for me to calm down. Thank you, Katie. The same kind of advice, maybe try something different with your journaling or don't do it for a little bit. It's not for everybody. If our, like I said, our anxiety symptoms are so strong, we're just spiraling, then we need to get those under control first. Because again, if the journaling is making it worse, we don't want to keep doing something that's making it worse. Okay. 
Another add-on says, I've been journaling for over a year now, but I feel like I'm just writing the same things over and over again. It's disheartening and I'm not making any progress. Some days I'll feel like maybe I've made a little progress and then within the next couple of days, I'm back to right where I started. Maybe I do, I'm doing journaling wrong. You're not. For me, it's almost like a one-sided conversation. I write about my thoughts and feelings, but maybe I need topics to help keep myself on track. Is there a more productive way of journaling? I think it's fine to just journal things out. What I would encourage, I have two thoughts for this. Now, if you feel like you're writing the same things over and over again, keep writing. You'll run out of things. And I know that sounds silly, but when I did the artist way and we had to do morning pages, about halfway through, so like 15 minutes in or like a page and a half in, and these are like big pages, by the way. It's like, it took me forever. Um, a page and a half in, I those same the same shit talking stuff I say to myself, the same worries and stressors and all that kind of garbage, that stuff would fade because I'd get it out of my system. Just do it. The author of The Artist's Way calls it vamping. She's like, did you get done with your vamping? And then you get into the real meat. And so if you find you're just doing over and over again, I encourage you to extend your journaling a little bit longer. I know that might be hard, but try to schedule it in and see if that works. Okay. That's just a potential. Maybe that will help. Second is utilizing workbooks like you know, Live Big or The Artist Way or joining my journal prompt club. Sometimes having a prompt can pull us out of that same-o, same-o kind of conversation that we have with ourselves. It can help us think about things in a different way. It can force us to consider something we haven't considered and all that good stuff. So that could maybe help as well. Okay, hang in there. Moving on to question number six says, hello, Katie and Kenyans, happy Thursday. Here's my question. Can flashbacks and dealing with trauma cause regression? Another regression question. Scenario is, I've been really battling, I've been battling a really intense childhood sexual abuse flashback lately. I haven't had this one persist or reactive in a while. I often come out of these flashbacks in a different room, sometimes hiding in a closet or a corner, and sometimes I'm sucking my thumb and I cry. I rarely cry. I'm so humiliated. I hate myself for this behavior. I'm trying to tell my therapist about this flashback, but I'm so afraid um, that these things will happen in session. What can I do? Okay. And there's a comment on this as well. Um, a couple of things. I encourage you to write a little bit. I know we just talked about journaling, but to write a little bit about what is happening for you. What does it feel like to suck your thumb? What's soothing about that? To be in a closet or a corner? Like, I feel like we need to give ourselves a little compassion here and thank our body for helping us feel safe and okay. That's what your body's doing is it's it's finding a way to keep you going without being too overstimulated and overwhelmed, right? And I assume you're dissociating because you know you like you're in a flashback and then you end up somewhere else. So you like don't remember how you got there. So it's so overwhelming to your system. Um I know you're humiliated, but I just want you to, if you can tap into how that feels and recognize that you're like trying to self-soothe. I wonder if we can reframe this is really what I'm getting at. Instead of thinking like, I hate myself. This is terrible behavior. So embarrassing. Why am I doing this? I'm a grown ass adult. What if instead we considered showing ourselves a little compassion? I'm curious about why I'm doing this. I feel so uncomfortable when I have this flashback and this does help me feel a little more soothed. Is that where you went when you were a child? Is that where we reverting back? You said it's regression. So maybe we already used to do this. Are there other ways that we can calm our system? I know this is during this flashback, so it's obviously in the moment. It's not like we have that many options, but we can do things to care for ourselves before, like 
early in the morning, we always do these same things to care for ourselves. Or as the evening progresses, if we know our flashbacks get worse at night, maybe we do a little extra self-care in that way. We do some of the soothing stuff, like even just hugging ourselves or having a warm cup of tea or hot chocolate or something um, that's calming and soothing. We can do some of those things, you know, uh, do a full body shake, dunking our head in cold water, having a sucky candy because that sucking and swallowing triggers our vagus nerve, calms our nervous system down. We can do some of the double in breaths, the helps us feel better. So those are just some of the things that I think I'd be curious about. Like if we've done this in the past, are there other ways we can self-soothe? Um, and can we prepare ahead and do a little bit more of that caretaking? It will get better as you're working through this. I know it sucks and it's, you know, nobody likes flashbacks. I'm so sorry you're dealing with this, but let's find some other ways to kind of calm us down. And I think that hopefully that urge to do that will stop. And please work your way up to telling your therapist this is happening. There's no shame in what you're doing. It's a natural response. I have a feeling it's probably what you did as a, as a child. And that's all you know. That's that's why you're doing it. That's how you calm yourself. If your therapist knows this, then maybe we can figure some other ways out or we can spend more time at the end of session like decompressing or have more tools, you know? And the fact that you're sucking your thumb makes me think that having a like candy, like a sucky candy, or a lollipop of sort, like having that on hand could help with that too. Because clearly that part's already soothing to you. But hang in there. It does get better. And a lot of people go through this. There's nothing wrong with you, okay? You're just doing your best to cope. And there's a comment on this. It says, I had this happen to me too because of complex trauma. See, you're not alone. Abandonment and neglect. Almost every session, I'm either fully or partially regressed, and I feel like a scared, helpless child. I think some of some call this an emotional flashback since there's no visual. I literally feel as if I'm a helpless child being neglected or abandoned again. How do you cope when your therapist becomes the trigger? And it's literally your fault. The therapist is amazing. It's not your fault. It's just your reaction. I'd let them know this is happening because... What I'd assume is is occurring is your therapist is challenging you to work through your trauma. They're pushing you, but they're pushing you a little too far, a little too much, a little too fast, and we don't have enough coping skills. And so we get triggered, we get overwhelmed, and we go and we have we go into that helpless child reaction. Now they need to know this so they can like step back or lessen the push a little bit, and possibly and probably help you come up with some other ways to manage and cope in session and out of session. And so please let them know it's not your fault. It's not their fault. It's the combination, right? They're going a little too fast. You don't have enough coping skills. So you're reverting and regressing back. But I don't want you to have to keep feeling that way in session. Therapy should challenge us, us, but it shouldn't push us past the point where then we end up regressing or, I don't know, having, uh, you know, dissociating, having flashbacks, feeling overwhelmed, wanting to shut down. It's, it's challenging, but not overstimulating, okay? Okay, let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, I've always kind of had trouble focusing or keeping my attention on things that don't really, that I don't, um, that I really find interesting. But lately, I feel like it's escalated to a whole new level. I'm diagnosed with depression and anxiety, so I know that that can be a symptom, but I'm finding it really hard to focus on anything, even just scrolling through TikTok or other stuff on my phone. I'm between jobs right now, so I'm home a lot. And it's making it nearly impossible for me to figure out how to spend my time wisely or even pick anything fun to do since nothing grabs my attention for more than a minute or two. I'm also having a really hard time sleeping at night because I'll wake up in the middle of the night and my brain will not shut up. 
Sometimes it takes me two or three hours to get back to sleep. Oh, that's brutal. I'm so sorry. I just recently started a new medication for my depression. Is there any chance that this is a side effect and will it stop? I feel like I'm losing my mind. Any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. Sorry, I'm having trouble talking today, you guys. I apologize. Um, It sounds like depression or anxiety, which is what you said you're diagnosed with both. Um, Did we not have these symptoms before the medication? That's my first question. Because if we suspect that our, our medication is causing this side effect, we need to figure out when it started. Because there are symptoms of anxiety and depression that could lead to what you're experiencing. The difficulty concentrating, that's huge with depression. Sleep changes, huge with both. Waking up and not being able to go back to sleep, mind is racing, anxiety, and part of depression. Those all kind of feed into or are symptoms of depression or anxiety. So if it was before, then I'm glad you started medication and that could hopefully alleviate some of these. Now, if it started because of the medication, let your psychiatrist know and see if there are other options out there. Now, I do want to give you the heads up that when we're trying a new medication, if the side effects aren't too terrible, it can take, you know, three, four, sometimes six weeks. I know it sucks, but I like my patients at least to try it for three or four weeks. Usually most of the newer medications now show efficacy by that point, because I want to know if it's going to work for you Because even if sometimes we have a little bit of side effects up front, like, oh, kind of upsets my stomach a little or my sleep's a little different, but it's tolerable and you have to decide what's tolerable for you. This does not sound tolerable. But if, you know, if it's like, oh, it's a little uncomfortable, we stick it out and then our depressive symptoms go down and the side effects, you know, becomes not a big deal. Sometimes the side effects even go away too, uh, especially nausea. Our body can become accustomed and it doesn't bother us anymore. Um, But talk to your doctor. Whoever prescribed you that medication, make an appointment, call them, whatever, however you can get a hold of them, and let them know you're having these symptoms if we think it's because of that medication and there's nothing wrong with going off and starting something else. That's why there's a ton of options. Everybody's body is different, okay? There was a comment on this that says, what about when this lack of interest extends into work? I thought I knew what I wanted to do as a career. I'm a maintenance technician but I don't enjoy what I do anymore. I know part of this has to do with not enjoying where I work. However, I don't even enjoy working in my field anymore. I don't feel like there's anything that I would enjoy doing for work. This is making my depression worse and instilling a ton of self-doubt. I thought I knew what I wanted in life and I'm not sure what I want anymore. It could be your depression speaking. Depression makes everything sound terrible. And the fact that you don't think there'd be anything that you would enjoy doing for work Let's just put a pin in quitting our jobs. Let's not make any rash decisions, okay? Because I suspect this is depression. I suspect your depression is taking away your enjoyment and your fulfillment from your job. Let your therapist know. If you're not seeing a therapist, I encourage you to reach out to one and find one. See a psychiatrist. Medication could pull you out of this pit. Our depression, one of the key components of it is like anhedonia, where we don't enjoy the things we used to enjoy. We just kind of hang and feel shitty about it. It's like apathetic about everything. And I think that might be what's going on here. And so let's be curious about that. Let's not jump to any conclusions. I don't, I think it's really the depression symptoms that are doing this to you. So let's try to treat that and see if we can come back out of it. Maybe in the future, we'll still want to change jobs and we don't really like that. But the fact that you don't think there's anything that you would enjoy doing for work tells me that it has nothing to do with your work and everything to do with your depression. Okay. So we got to treat that. Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hi, Katie, what do you do with clients that don't meet the full criteria for any particular diagnosis, but have some common symptoms? 
My therapist says she doesn't have a diagnosis for me and it makes me feel like I don't deserve to see him since there's nothing legitimately wrong. I always figured I was probably just being weak and feeling sorry for myself and this proves it. Not at all. Um, I have a ton of patients over the years who don't meet criteria for anything. They have some anxious symptoms. I had a patient once who had a test anxiety. I've had patients who um, have difficulty in their relationships. No depression, no nothing else. You don't have to have a diagnosis to see a therapist. You don't have to have a diagnosis to have the feelings and the struggles that you're experiencing be valid. A diagnosis just means that we fit this criteria that some random group of psychiatrists and the APA have put together because they decided that that's what that is. Yes, it's helpful when it comes to diagnostics and for insurances to cover things and for medications to get covered. I understand part of its purpose, but everyone's so different that only considering diagnoses is such a limited and just ignorant view of the space, right? Like we can feel back in the day. So we're in the DSM, what, six now probably? I don't even know. Um, But the DSM, I think five original when I was in school had what was called V codes. And they got rid of those, I think with the text revision or maybe this new one. But V codes were almost all that I used when I first started working in this like little outpatient facility. V codes were, it's just like stress with work, stress with family, difficulty in their marriage. Like V codes were, I forget what they even really stood for, but um, let me look that up really quick for you because I'm, you know, yeah, DSM-5, V codes cover a variety of psychosocial problems. And it was stressful situations that have a negative impact on your mental health. And we used to use V codes all the time. Was there other diagnoses on top of them? Sometimes. All the time? Nope, definitely not. And I encourage you to challenge those thoughts that you have to have a diagnosis in order to see a therapist because that's not true. I currently am in therapy and EMDR. I don't have a trauma that I'm working through. Uh, I'm struggling with grief. I don't really have a diagnosis. I'm not depressed. I do have some symptoms of anxiety, but I'm not, I don't have an anxiety disorder, I don't think. Um, I could ask my therapist, but we don't have to have a diagnosis in order to have access to therapy or be have our therapy be valid or you know warranted we have every right to take up space and to have that hour every week or every two weeks or twice a week or whatever you need you have every right to get that support we don't have to have a diagnosis in order for that to be the truth okay let's move on to question nine our final question i think i got everything from that when i was looking but yes okay Question number nine says, hi, Katie, I lost my safe person and safe space when I stopped seeing my therapist in May. Even though she made my mental health a lot worse, I felt a deep bond with her and opened up completely to her. Could be some attachment stuff there. Now that I've stopped seeing her, I feel so incredibly lost. I don't feel safe in the world or in my body. I don't know how to move on. I'm so afraid of trusting anyone else the way I trusted her. I feel like every time I allow myself to feel safe with someone, they leave me. I know I'm a complex person, but I don't think I deserve to be handed off to the next person as soon as I get to be too much. No one ever commits to me. I feel like I'm I'm someone people can use. And when they're done with me, they just hand me off to, to become someone else's problem. I don't want to be someone someone that people study, learn from, or use as they please. I'm a human being, and I used to think that I had the right to be treated with some sort of respect, but my voice is constantly silenced. I was told to be quiet for so long, and now my problems are too complex, my trauma too severe. 
No one knows how to treat me. I get tossed from one person to the next. I get told that they'll help me, but eventually they all come to the same conclusion. This is outside of their field of expertise and they ship me off to the next person. Is this what my life will be like forever? A couple things. I'm very suspicious about complex PTSD or BPD, borderline personality disorder. And the reason that I say that is this attachment and safe space and needing a safe person in your therapist, that kind of level of connection and commitment and almost dependence on a therapist usually comes out of those two diagnoses. And so I assume it's coming out of one or both of those diagnoses because of that intense connection and the feeling passed around. Unfortunately, a lot of my BPD patients in the past had been passed around a lot from therapist to therapist. And I have a couple of thoughts and hopefully some tools or helpful resources for you. Now, first of all, when it comes to complex trauma and trauma treatment, um, we do have the wonderful hope for recovery. It's hope and the number four recovery. I think it's .org. They offer free trauma counseling in groups. I don't know if they do individual, but you can check them out. Um, they also take donations, but everything is free. And they don't think they take donations per session. It's supposed to all be free, but every year they have a fundraiser. So I'll let you know about that. Anyway, um, great resource. Wonderful thing for those of us needing some extra support. But a huge piece of this, I feel like, is finding a therapist who does dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. Now, I have there's one person in our community who does not like it, and that's fair. And I'm sure there's more, but there's one person who's talked, spoken up about it. Different strokes for different folks. If it doesn't work for you, that's fine. But DBT was created by Marsha Linehan, who her, he, she herself has borderline personality disorder. And it was created kind of as a build on top of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT to assist those of us with BPD. Now, I know you're saying, well, I don't even know if I have BPD. Maybe I have complex PTSD. I find it to be incredibly effective either way. My trauma patients, my BPD patients, my eating disorder patients, self-injury patients, DBTs, incredibly, incredibly helpful. So I encourage you to find someone who does that. Call around, ask around, because the difference between your old therapist and a therapist that you will find who does DBT is that I don't think your therapist had very good boundaries. Like you feeling that deep bond with her. I know people might fight with me and be like, but you're supposed to feel connected to your therapist. Yes, but not dependent. That safe place, safe person that I have to have them. All of that is, it can be incredibly toxic to someone who has attachment issues, BPD, complex PTSD. We can feel like we need our therapist in order to survive versus feeling like our therapist is our supportive person to help push us to do the things in life, right? Like on our own. Um, and so I think a DBT-based treatment would be best for you because it's just, to me, just like everything about it just feels like all of my patients with BPD. So look into that um, and know that DBT should also come along with the group. It doesn't I know it doesn't always work that way. Not everybody has openings and things like that, but I would love for you to see someone, uh, you know, once a week and have a group once a week. That's usually the ideal situation. So look into that, see if there's, you know, even facilities that offer it that you can go to. Let, let, let's get you some more of that support because no, your life won't be like this forever, but not everyone, like a lot of therapists don't know how to manage someone with BPD or complex PTSD. And they end up not having rigid enough boundaries, which can lead to us feeling super overly connected, thinking that they're our only safe person in this world and we have to be with them. It can cause that kind of response in us. It can also cause us to be really reactive because they're a human and they can't 
we, you know, we can't count on them 100% of the time. They're going to get sick or not show up or have to go on vacation. And that can be really triggering for us because they're our only safe person, right? So there's all these things that people who aren't really trained to manage it and help treat it aren't going to know what to do. And it can be incredibly distressing and dysregulating to us. Having someone who does DBT primarily, such as like myself and other clinicians, is going to be really healing for you because the their rigid boundaries, while they may feel uncomfortable at first and you will push them, are going to keep you safe and help you feel more regulated more often. So no, it won't be like that forever. We just have to find you the right help. Okay? Now, there was a comment on this. It says, hey, Katie, maybe this is related because my question's about attachment to a therapist. There are often questions where people say they're very attached to their therapist. What if I'm the opposite and I don't think I can become attached to my therapist? I'm currently on a wait list, so I don't have any therapy experience yet. But whenever I come across posts about close attachment to a therapist, I can picture myself in the situation. Oh, I can't picture myself in this situation. And maybe that's exactly what I need therapy for. I don't know. I just recognize that I don't really let people get that close to me. We'll get into this. And that I'm very good at talking about anything other than myself. That also makes me kind of terrified of therapy because that will be, a, it'll be all about me. How do you as a therapist work with someone where you notice that they're reluctant to form a relationship? Is it necessary to become attached to your therapist? I read that the therapeutic relationship is very important, but I'm afraid I might unintentionally avoid building one. Thanks for all you do. I'm not a native, so I hope this is understandable. Your English is impeccable. Um, What you're experiencing is known as avoidant attachment, and it's incredibly common. A lot of people have anxious attachment, which is what the other, the opposite is, the overly attached. Us anxious folks tend to feel like we need other people to help us soothe. And so we cling to people. Those that are avoidant more like you don't want people to really know us that well and kind of push people away. So I'd encourage you, if you're able to express that to your therapist right up front, see if they uh, do attachment-based therapies. That could be really helpful. Since you're on a wait list, I know you might not have the, you know, your pick of therapists but let them know that you think you have an avoidant attachment style. Now, I have an entire workshop on my website. Just go to katiemorton.com, go to the shop. The attachment workshop's available. That could be a helpful tool for you to better understand because we can manage our way or what we call have an earned secure attachment. So we can heal from our past experiences that have led to this reluctance to let people get to know us. We can heal from that so that we can move forward and be be able to healthily form bonds. We shouldn't be overly attached. We shouldn't be pushing people away. We really should be in a place where people who deserve to be in our life, who have built trust with us and over time, we let them in and we feel good with them. That's what we really strive for. And we can get there. It just sounds like what you're experiencing is more of that avoidant. And that's okay. It's usually as a result of difficulty in our childhood, whether we had inconsistent parenting, we had abusive parents, any kind of thing. Whatever it is, when it was happening to us, we internalize the fact that if we let people get too close, we'll get hurt. And so as a protective measure as an adult, we keep people at arm's length. It helps us feel safer. Um, And I get it, right? I totally understand. But that's something that we can work through. And as long as you let them know that you think that's what's going on, they can ask more questions and ensure that that's exactly what is going on. And then help you work through it because you can earn a secure attachment and those urges to push people away will go away. Okay. And it's up to the therapist to kind of help you create that bond with them a little and help grow the relationship. Obviously it takes two people, but we we're like trained to do it. So don't worry about that one thing at a time. Let's get you into therapy. You communicate what you think you're mostly struggling with and we'll start working towards that. It also just takes a little time to build that relationship. So be patient with yourself. Okay. Okay. 
Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for watching. Thank you for using the links in the description. That really does help and for sharing this podcast. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye. Katie.